Welcome to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So I'm standing out in a field this week, and it's over 100 degrees. I'm coaching flag football, and there's a rule in the league that says if the real field temperature is 104, you can't practice. So there I am, standing in the heat, looking at my phone, and wouldn't you know it, the real fill is 103. So we practice. And as we're running around and I'm jogging around trying to instruct some fifth grade boys regarding how to play flag football, I begin to think about Christmas. It's the end of August, we're in a heat wave, the humidity's terrible, the heat is bad, I am ready for Christmas. Now, as you get to know me, you're going to come to an understanding that it is my favorite time of year, that I am really into the Christmas season. Uh, We go all out in the Brewer family. It is a favorite. It is a special time of year. And there are a couple of movies when you mention the word Christmas that come to mind. Um, I think most people who are into the Christmas spirit or into the Christmas season, they, they like either It's a Wonderful Life or they tend to like A Christmas Carol. Now, don't get me wrong, I like It's a Wonderful Life, but I'm a Christmas Carol guy. I like the vintage version. I like the Disney version. I like the Muppets version. If it's a Christmas carol, I like it. It's one of my favorite things to watch during the season. So a few years ago, we happened to be in New York City during the Christmas season. And there was a museum called the J.P. Morgan Library. And I went to visit the library because they were, they had a, a tour of Martin Luther, of artifacts from Martin Luther's life in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so while I was at the museum, I'm walking around and I'm looking at other things and I see this journal under protected plexiglass. And I knew that this wasn't part of the reformational exhibit and I walked over there to see what it was Curious, curiousness got the best of me. I looked down, and it is the manuscript of Charles Dickens for A Christmas Carol. It resides in the J.P. Morgan Library in Manhattan. And it was just a fascinating thing to look at and observe and study and to begin to read it and to see the word Ebenezer. It, it was great. Fantastic. So... One of the reasons that I like the Christmas Carol is is I like the way that Dickens uses the ghost from Christmas past, the ghost from Christmas present, and future in order to help Ebenezer Scrooge understand the frailty of life, the preciousness of one's soul, and what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a great literary tactic that he uses in order to flesh this out in the course of this famous story. 
Well, now this morning, we're going to look at the transfiguration. And we know that this is not a fictional tale, that it is real, that it is truth, because it's in Scripture. And as we look at the transfiguration, you're going to see voices from the past, a very important voice in the present, and a message for the future. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word which never fails us. Your word which never lets us down. Your word which is always true and is eternal. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts this morning your word. That Jesus would come into our life, Lord, and speak to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we can hear you more clearly, we can love you greater, that we can appreciate your kingdom more, that we would have a passion to tell others of the truth that is the cross of Jesus, and that we would rest in the knowledge that we belong to you. It is for his sake that we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 9 this morning, but one of the things that we need to do is we need to go back several chapters. I don't normally do this in the course of preaching the sermon, but I think it's important that we understand what Mark is doing and how he's building up to the transfiguration. It's actually very fascinating. And one of the things that I've done in explaining this is I've divided it like we are at a play where there are numerous acts that unfold before you. And so I want us to think about Act 1. And I want us to think about how this story is building and leading us to the top of this mountain. And so the first act is the backdrop of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the crowds, and Jesus' own family. As we navigated our way from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7, we see these different groups expressing great doubt about who Jesus is. The Pharisees believe that he is a heretic. The religious leaders think that he is wrong. The crowds are confused. Is he a miracle worker? Is he a teacher? Who is this man? And even his own family has doubts. And so Mark is building his story and he's telling his audience, the people of Rome and us today, that there is great confusion about who Jesus is and why he has come. That's Act 1. So then we come to Act 2 and that's in Mark chapter 8. Jesus feeds the 4,000 in Gentile country. Just a few weeks ago we talked about this. And after he did this... He got into a boat with the apostles and they began to have a discussion about bread. That they had forgotten to bring bread on their journey. And Jesus cannot believe that they are having this discussion. What are you doing? Why are you talking about this? Do you not understand? Do you not see? Mark chapter 8 verse 18. Do you not yet perceive, perceive or understand do you not have eyes to see nor ears to hear? And so Jesus reminds them that he fed the 5,000 with five loaves. A Jewish audience. It would have been more than 12,000 because there would have been women and there would have also been children involved in this miraculous scene. And Jesus asked the disciples how many pieces were left and they tell him 12. 
the number of the tribes of Israel. You see what Jesus is doing. He's trying to help them understand. And then he says, I fed the 4,000 just minutes ago. How, with how many loaves? Their answer is seven. How many pieces were left over? Seven. What does that mean in the Old Testament? Seven is the number of perfection. So here is Jesus in the boat with his apostles. And he's telling them, I fed Israel. I have fed the Gentiles. The number 12, the number seven. Do you not realize who I am? Do you not understand that I am the Messiah? Don't you get it? Act two. So we come to act three. They get out of the boat. They make their way to Bethsaida. And for the first time, Mark mentions in his gospel that Jesus miraculously enables a blind man to see. Many miracles have been mentioned up until this point, but not blindness. And if you remember the story, Jesus spits in his eyes. And we know that according to Jewish culture during that time, that this was not considered something medicinal. This was considered shocking and disgraceful, as it would be today. And the man rubs his eyes and he sees people walking around and he thinks they are trees. And then he is finally a second time able to see and he sees things clearly. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and what he's trying to help them understand through this miraculous event is that my ministry, my life is shocking and disgraceful. That what I have come to do, that I have come to give my life, that I have come to die on the cross, that is shocking. That is not what you were expecting at all, period. My death on the cross is disgraceful. That I will be considered a criminal. That I will be found guilty by the Roman government. And that I will receive capital punishment. This is disgraceful. And so through this miraculous event, this blind man in Bethsaida, Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand what is going to take place in his ministry. They're trying to help them see who he is. Now on to Act 4. It's been building. It's been building. And in Mark chapter 8, verses 29, we finally hear it. Peter, who is representing all of the apostles, tells Jesus, you are the Christ. A turning point in the gospel of Mark, and Jesus is now going to head to Jerusalem. The disciples finally understand, right? They finally see, right? Well, then there's Act 5. And that's what we talked about last week. That's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus pulls the apostles aside, and he very plainly speaks to them and explains to them his humiliation, his suffering, and that he is going to die. And the apostles want nothing of it. Peter, representing the apostles, who right before this had said, you are the Christ, is now saying, no, 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 no. 
No, no, no. We're a part of this for notoriety and victory and authority and power. We're not doing this to be shamed and to suffer and to die. And Jesus uses the famous phrase from Scripture, get behind me, Satan. Because what the apostles are saying is, a, is filled with satanic thinking. Remember in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus and said, I will give you all of this. I will make your path easy if you will just bow to me. And Jesus would not have any of it. And so Jesus is telling the apostles that my journey is going to be filled with difficulties. The disciples don't want any of it. And Jesus is saying to them, you sound just like Satan. Get away from it. And then we come to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some of you will see the kingdom before you die. And that leads us all the way to act number six, the transformation. Excuse me, the transfiguration, which also is transformation. Mark has been building to this. And with the transfiguration, we see a glimpse of the exalted Christ and the kingdom of God. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is the king of kings. And his kingdom is coming. And these three apostles get to see a glimpse of it. It's a wonderful story that Mark is writing. It's a story that is true. It is a story that is powerful. A couple of things that I want you to see before we really focus on two things. Look at verses, chap, verses 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. There are just a few things that I want to mention to help you understand what is happening here. Beginning in verse 2, we see that six days is mentioned by Mark. Now, this is an illusion. It was a literal six days, but it is also an illusion to Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, where the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. One of the culminating events in all of the Old Testament, and Mark is trying to help his audience understand that this is even greater than that moment in the Old Testament. Because we see the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of God's people. We see Jesus as in, in his glorified state, and we see the coming of the kingdom. So there are parallels, and here is King Jesus. We also see in verses 2 through 8, Elijah and Moses. So Elijah is going to represent the prophets, and Moses is going to represent the law. And there they are speaking with Jesus, who is the word that has come in flesh. And so it's no wonder that Peter is foolish when he is exposed to all of this. It's interesting to me that Mark is a scribe for the apostle Peter. And so Peter is explaining to him exactly what happened 
and how foolish he was and how foolish he felt in the presence of Moses and Elijah and King Jesus. Don't erase this from the record. Don't make me look better. The people of God for all eternity need to understand my sinful response and my foolishness in light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what the glory of Jesus does. When we come into the presence of him, we understand how foolish we are in light of his perfection and in light of his holiness and in light of his goodness and in light of his love. We are nothing compared to him. And Peter wants us to see that and to understand that. We're going to build tents and we're going to worship you and we're going to serve you. And almost as soon as this comes out of his mouth, mouth, Moses and Elijah are gone. We do not compare to Jesus. That's what Peter is trying to help us understand. Then in verses 9 through 13, the disciples are having a hard time understanding what Jesus is talking about regarding resurrection. So it's important to understand what they would have believed at that time in order to realize why they were having such a challenging time grasping the words of Christ. It's easy for us to know because we have the New Testament which explains the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their realization would have been similar to that of the Pharisees. They believed that resurrection would happen at the end of time. That when God would finally establish his kingdom in perfection forever, then the resurrection of God's people would take place. What do you mean, Jesus, that in days you are going to experience resurrection? We don't get it. We don't have a framework for it. We don't understand. Then the second thing to understand from verses 9 through 13 is they're coming down the mountain and they're talking and they're asking questions about Elijah. Jesus is wanting them to understand that John the Baptist was the spirit of Elijah. Thus, Elijah has come in John the baptizer. There is great similarities between the two. So we have these acts, these six acts, that build up to the transfiguration. Some aside notes to help you understand what is happening in this passage. And then there's two things that I want you to see, two things that I want you to understand. The first is trust the second is listen. The first is trust, and the second is listen. So as, as the three apostles are standing on the mountaintop, as they are having a mountaintop experience, they are seeing Moses, and they are seeing Elijah, and they are seeing Jesus. So they are seeing two representations of life under the old covenant. And then they are seeing King Jesus, who is the representation of the new covenant. Jesus, in fact, is all of Scripture. That's why he's our king. That's why he's the son of God. And as they are 
looking at this and they are seeing this as God's people, as those who belong to Israel, maybe, perhaps, they came to the understanding of who Jesus rightly is in light of the Old Testament. Now, as they're coming down the mountain, we know that they have a lot of questions and the disciples, the apostles, will not fully understand until they see Jesus after the resurrection. And even at that time, Jesus has to sit down and explain to them the kingdom of God. But what Mark is wanting his audience to understand as he portrays Elijah and Moses and Jesus, what he's trying to bring us to realize is that this is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, of all God's promises, of all God's plans. That we're getting a glimpse of the coming of the kingdom in its fullness when everything will be made right and everything will be made perfect. And that God has allowed the apostles, the three apostles, to see this so that they would begin to understand who Jesus is and what his ministry is all about. And so in the transfiguration, we are reminded that God has not forgotten us. There is Moses and all the promises that were made to Moses. There is Elijah and all of the promises that were made to God's people. And then there is Jesus who fulfills all of it. And so when we come to this text, when we come to this story, and we hear from the voices of the past, Elijah and Moses, we are reminded of God's people that he is true to his word. Here is our Savior. Here is our Redeemer. Here is our Messiah. He has not forgotten us. He has, he has come to accomplish everything. Everything. And then I want us to zoom in to one particular individual. One particular person standing on this mountaintop. And that's Moses. We can better understand the fulfillment of God's promises through him. Remember, Moses died not having stepped foot where? In the promised land. How disappointing do you think that was? Rightly, Moses would have understood that this was punishment for his disobedience to God. But at the same time, Moses would have known that God is faithful and God is true and God is love and God is merciful and God is good. And so the end of the day, the end of his days for Moses would have been challenging. I want to see the promised land. I want to step foot in the promised land. Think of all that I have done for you, my Lord. But he wasn't allowed. And we come to the transfiguration and what we see. Well, we don't know exactly what mountain they were standing on, but we do know that Moses is standing in the promised land. Trinity, that, that's our God. He is good and he is true and he is faithful and his promises are sure. And in this picture, a glimpse of the coming of the kingdom, we see Moses finally standing in the land of promise. 
knowing that he will be in the true land of promise forever. And so that's an encouragement to our souls as we navigate this thing that is called the Christian life. We cling to the truth of God's word, that he is faithful to his promises, that he knows what is best for his people, that he knows what is good for us, that he loves us, and that he has a plan for us. And even when it doesn't seem right, even when it's difficult and challenging and dark, we trust in the sovereignty of God and who he is. Moses, you're not going to see the promised land. Because, you're not going to step foot in the promised land because of your disobedience. But part two of that story is that you will stand in the presence of Christ with Elijah on top of the mountain in the promised land before the apostles of Jesus Christ in an age to come. And there it is. God knows what he is doing. God is faithful. God is worthy of our trust. He knows what is best for his people. The transfiguration reminds us of this because the old covenants are fulfilled finally in Christ who stands atop this mountain. And even in Moses, we are reminded of the faithful and goodness of God. That's the first thing, trust. Secondly, listen. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Could anything be more straightforward in all of Scripture? This is my beloved son, Jesus Christ. Listen to him. That's it. God is telling his people He's telling these apostles, listen to Jesus. You will be better off for it. Listen to him. His words will save your soul. John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words of Jesus why do we listen to him? Because according to John 6, 63, they are life. Why should we listen to him? Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Not only is the word of God life, the word of God brings to us in a wicked and sinful generation knowledge and understanding. We live in a world that wants to deceive us. We live in a world that wants to lie to us, and the Word of God brings knowledge and understanding. John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and hear this, the truth will set you free. So the Word of God not only brings life, it not only brings knowledge and understanding, it will set you free from the bondage of of this world. And then finally, John chapter 1. Why should we listen to Jesus? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Father of the Transfiguration tells the apostles, 
listen to this man, listen to my son, listen to the King of Kings, the Son of God, your Redeemer and your Messiah. Listen to him because his words are life. His words are full of knowledge and true understanding. His words will set you free. And his words are full of grace. Every time that Jesus speaks, we should be reminded through the cross and the empty tomb that God has forgiven us, that he has accepted us, and that Jesus has atoned for us, that we have life in him. He is everything. And that is what Mark is communicating to his audience as he talks about the transfiguration in chapter 9 is this man, this king, I have been building up to this moment and telling you this gospel and explaining to you this gospel. This rabbi carpenter from Nazareth is everything. He's from the first to the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Believe in him. Trust in him. Look to him. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings life. We thank you that it provides knowledge and understanding, that it sets us free and that it is full of grace. May we trust in your word this morning and may we exalt your name the rest of this week and forevermore. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.